So glad we're together uh, in this way today. So we're, we're continuing to study the book of Jonah. So grab your Bible. Somebody needs to go to the bedroom and find a Bible. Feel free to get up right now and come on back in or get on your phone. We'll be finishing the book of Jonah today. Just just go ahead and settle in and, and get comfortable. Uh, I might add not too comfortable. There is something that keeps us awake about sitting in uh, pews with straight backs. In fact, here's a picture of my son last Sunday worshiping live stream. I've always known Luke was laid back, but that's getting a little bit too laid back. I don't know if he stayed awake the whole time. Hopefully you can stay awake because we're in the middle of a great study. And I think you're going to be surprised as I was that Jonah chapter four will actually speak to the crisis that we're in right now. I thought we might ought to jump out of it, but the more I study, the more I think this is going to say what we need to hear in many ways today. Let's sort of catch ourselves up. Jonah is a prophet of God. He's called by God to go to the ancient city of Nineveh and to preach. These are Gentiles. These are heathens. These are very cruel people. So when God calls Jonah, Jonah says, no way, God, I'm going to those people. And Jonah, in fact, does the exact opposite. He begins to run to Tarshish. He's, he's trying to get as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can. And so he jumps on a boat to go. Everything goes crazy. You know, the people in the boat figure out that Jonah is a piece of work that they're going to have to get rid of. So they throw him over the boat. And then God, Scripture says, provided a big fish. And he swallows Jonah. And he takes Jonah all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. Talk about hitting rock bottom. Jonah hits rock bottom. And in that moment, like so many of us, he starts praying. And he repents and he comes to God and understands God to be his salvation. It's a glorious prayer and a glorious chapter. And so, man, what I would expect is that Jonah is just overjoyed. I mean, he's led a revival of 120,000 people. Uh, You would believe that he is so excited about what God has done, that God has answered his prayers. I mean, he walks in the city, does all these mighty things. And, And you think he'd be going, well, thank you, God. Thanks for using me. I never dreamed that you could do this. I mean, for instance, let's say if, if one of us were to um, develop the cure for the coronavirus right now, and we could go cure everybody in our city, state, nation, world, can you imagine the exhilaration of being able to do that? That's what I'm expecting out of Jonah. Let's pick up the story. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. What a response. God's used you, people are turning to God, and you're mad. I'm I'm thinking, Jonah, this is the moment where your friends give you the Gatorade bath. This is the moment, Jonah, if you play this right, you'll be the keynote speaker at the church growth conference. This is your moment, Jonah, to to write a book and make lots of money. I'll go ahead and give you the title, A Well of a Revival. Well, that's, that's a little cheap, but I mean, that's what we're going to expect out of Jonah. But here's this word right here, angry. It literally means to burn with angry. He is livid that God has forgiven these people. And so um, look at verse, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah says, God, you know, I knew this about you. I I knew the kind of God you are. I've I've read Exodus 32, these very verses that Jonah quotes in this prayer. And I knew if these people would turn that you would take them back. And quite frankly, Lord, I'd rather live in a world without this. I'd rather die than live in a world with this. And, And so, Lord... I'm angry, and, and, and so God breaks in, and God just asks a simple question. God's so wise, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? I mean, we'd be saying, come on, man. Are you really mad? Are you really mad in the midst of this revival of God using you? I, I just don't get it. And then Jonah goes to pout. Amazing. Look at verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Jonah is so perturbed, he just walks away, goes out, finds him a lawn chair, a beach umbrella, a little Jimmy Buffett in the background, takes his sandals off, and just wants to watch He wants to watch until Nineveh blows it and God destroys him. Or certainly he wants to give God a chance to really come to his senses. And so there he is, laying back, hoping something bad's going to happen. And then look at verse 6. The Lord comes back in such a creative way. Then the Lord God provided. Now, that's that's the second time we've seen that word provided. We saw it back in uh, chapter 1 where the Lord God provided a fish. Now God provides a leafy plant. The the word could also be translated, he appointed it. So God provides a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Talking about some miracle grow, this is absolutely certified God, miracle grow. This plant grows up right overnight. It gives his head the ease. It it, it gives, it eases his discomfort. And and watch it, verse 6. Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided. There's the third time we're going to see that that word. God provided a worm. He provided a plant. He provided a worm. Which chewed the plant so that withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, here we go. It would be better for me to die than to live. So what does God do? God comes back and says, okay, Jonah, in the middle of this, you know, you've tried to create a shade. It's not quite shady enough. I'm going to provide a plan. I'm going to bless you even in the middle of your rebellion. And... um, so it grows up, and yet, then God says, and, and then I'm going to try to teach you a lesson. Then he sends the worm, and the worm eats the plant up, and then Jonah begins to be under the heat and under the wind. It's a, just a pretty bad situation. And let's just be honest here. Jonah's an emotional wreck. 
I mean, he goes, I mean, the word earlier for him being happy was that he was exceedingly happy. And just a couple of verses later, he's suicidal. So Jonah's going up and down like a roller coaster. And then God says, let me give you some perspective again. He comes back with a question and adds a couple words. But God said to Jonah, is it right? Think about it, Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah, get a grip. Get some perspective here. You are angry about this plant, and yet you don't care about the Ninevites. And then watch what Jonah said. It is. <laughs> he thinks he's justified. And I am so angry, I wish I were dead. And then look at verse 10. For the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? What's God saying? How can you be so concerned about this plant and so unconcerned about these people, these people who don't know their right hand from their left hand? What does that mean? We would say, these people are clueless. They have no idea what's life like or right. They have no idea what's right and what's wrong. Jesus would have called them, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There's some compassion here. Now, as as we look at this chapter, there's a a conflict going on here. And we've been talking about depths for this four weeks because there's a lot of deep concepts in this book that we have mistaken to just be a children's book. And in this chapter, we see the depths of Jonah's selfishness. It's ridiculous that in the middle of all this, the only person he can think about is himself. But at the same time, here's what's surprising, is we see the depths of God's gracefulness. And they come in conflict here. I mean, if you, you read the chapter, I mean, Jonah uses the personal pronoun I, pronoun, I, me, my, over and over again. He's angry. Now, why is he so angry? Because he's got this, this bitterness built up in him toward these Assyrians in Nineveh. He can't let go of it. Guys, one of the, the most dangerous things for any of us is unforgiveness, and Jonah absolutely has it. And, and that unforgiveness morphs into anger. And if you've studied this long, you understand that anger morphs into depression. That most people struggle with depression are because of repressed anger. And that's exactly what's going on with Jonah. Even his prayers are selfish. Now, after what had happened in chapter 3, after God had answered his prayer, after God had used Jonah to lead this great revival, you think chapter 4 would be about the Ninevites. You would think even better than that, it would be about God. God, you are mighty. But it's all about Jonah. and That's a miserable place to be. E. Stanley Jones said years ago, the most used word in hell is I. And to be in selfishness is to be in hell right now. Jonah's experiencing that. And yet sometimes in our culture, we think that's the way you're supposed to live. We say, go ahead, look out for number one. If you just take care of yourself, everything else is going to fall in place. Even spiritually, we sort of make this case in an odd way. One of my favorite Christian authors has a story, you know, or a little 
metaphor I've used in many, many sermons. I think it might be misplaced. He says, um, if God has a refrigerator in heaven, your picture's on it. Oh, I like that thought, and I understand that sentiment. But what, what I'm figuring out is, guys, it's not about me. Um, you know, whose picture's probably on God's refrigerator is the Ninevites who don't know him. And so the center of the universe, it never works when I'm the center of the universe. It only works when God's the center of the universe. And God gracefully keeps on going back to Jonah, trying to make this happen. I mean, we see God's grace toward the Ninevites. We see God's grace over and over toward Jonah, even in this chapter. Don't dare walk away from our study of Jonah and say, there's no grace in the Old Testament. It's all over this book. You see, God is... He's pursuing Jonah. There's an interesting title to an 18th century book. Never read the book, but I love the title. It's called The Hound of Heaven. And the idea behind this is that God hounds us. He pursues us. He uses all kinds of things we'll talk about in just a moment to do that. Now, I love this story I read this week a couple years ago. There was a man in Israel that, that God was hounding. And so he finally brought a lawsuit, and he wanted a restraining order on God because he didn't think God was treating him very nicely. So it actually comes before a judge, and the judge denies his request because the judge says God cannot be here to represent himself. I think God could do quite fine, don't you? But here's the point. Our God is on an endless pursuit of us. He's so graceful that he never stops. In fact, let's look at this a little bit, what we see in this chapter, some of the the grace gifts that Jonah experiences. Number one is that Jonah is going to experience a graceful promise. I've always been excited about trying to do that. I love Andy Stanley. I feel like Andy Stanley. My preaching has improved in a split second. You You just touch the screen and it goes. Well, let me get back to the point. Jonah knows the promise of God back in Exodus 34 about God being gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. You know, he understands about God. Jonah has very good theology, but terrible application. He think, you'd think that grace would change him. And then another point of gracefulness in God is a, a graceful question. Often... The best thing someone can do for us when we are warped in our thinking is to ask us a question. And God God doesn't berate Jonah. He doesn't jump on his case. He just says a couple of times, yeah, what'd you think about this, my man? Is it really right for you to be so angry about this? Sometimes a friend comes in our life and just says, you know, buddy, I know you pretty well. Are you okay? Um is this really that big a deal? Are you willing to die on this hill? And it's those kind of questions that makes me stop a minute and go, wow, I'm blowing this out of proportion. I mean, is your attitude helping? You know, so often we have to interject those questions gracefully to slow us down. I've met with married couples before. Maybe you're meeting with the couple and um, years ago, the man had made some big mistakes in their marriage, and the wife had forgiven him. 
And then now it's, you know, a decade later, and the wife has now made a crazy mistake, and he cannot forgive her. He holds on to it. And you sit there and you listen, and, and finally I interject a question. Do you remember how she forgave you? Is it possible this is now your chance to forgive her? And so God comes to Jonah and says, slow down a minute. I want you to think, is that little plant really that important? And that's, that's the next one, which is a, a graceful blessing. In the middle of this story in Jonah's rebellion, God provides a vine, a plant, a small gesture to, to make his life easier. And like I mentioned a minute ago, Jonah gets exceedingly happy about this, over the top. But then on the other hand, not only did God provide the plan, he provided the worm, and I would call the worm a graceful trial. God appoints a worm to come and eat up the plant. And let's think about this. Often God allows, or God even brings suffering or trials. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because of what trials can do for you. And so often suffering is God's megaphone to get my attention so that I can put life in perspective to remind me of what's not important and what is important. But here's, here's what I see in these, these two points here. Jonah gets way too excited about the plant and way too angry about the worm. I heard, and I forget where I heard this, but very often we find out what our idols are when something makes us way too excited or way too sad. I mean, you know, we live in Alabama, and so I've taken it to be a bad sign in my life if after the Alabama-Auburn football game, if, if that literally makes my week or breaks it. If my joy for the next seven days, or maybe some of us we struggle even further, because Auburn beat Alabama this last year, if, if that sticks with me, you know what? That's a pretty sure sign. That's way too important than it ought to be to me. And if I get too sad about something, something measly, you know, some material possession taken away from me like, like Jonah did, then that's probably the, a sign that it actually means too much to me. And so God's trying to teach Jonah. And number five, he uses a graceful visual aid. I mean, he makes it as real as he can for Jonah by displaying his joy and his anger toward a plant and a worm and trying to get him to at least make the jump and go, well, how can you be so angry with me? How can you be so angry when great things are happening that really count for all of eternity? So, I want to stop here because this really is helping me this week. Is Our current crisis that we're going through right now with the quarantine and everything being shut down and canceled, this is not easy. And yet I think God gives us grace in the very way he gave Jonah, if we'd pay attention. By just a, a graceful promise, I see so many of you on social media posting scriptures, if God be for us, who can be against us? I will never, never, never leave you nor forsake you. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who've been called according to his promise. And God gives us those so, so we can hold on to those. And I, 
I challenge you to, to keep those in front of you. I think God also gives us some subtle questions. For instance, should I really be this out of sorts because sports are canceled and all ESPN can show is reruns? Is that become really too important to me? Do things that don't matter bring too much joy and things that have been taken away from me bring too much sadness in this moment? I'm believing, my friends, that God could really use this to teach us. I mean, he uses trials. I mean, if you look at the history of mankind, even Jonah's life, it doesn't happen until he's in a disaster that he really turns to God. And I don't like that. I don't like that about myself. But I think it's true. And so will you allow this trial to push you away from God or to draw you closer to God? Because God is giving us some amazing visual aids right in the middle of this. How about this empty church building? That makes me know how bad I miss it. How about the empty restaurants, the empty streets? Things we become so dependent on. How about your family <laughs> that honestly you're being forced to spend a lot of time with? Hope it's going well. Don't let me start a fight right now. But maybe just maybe God's using this visual aid to say, you know, maybe some of those other things need to be slowed down at least and spend good time with your family. You see, here's what I want us to know this morning. God's working in a graceful way through this. And something that we need to be clear about is that the mission has not been canceled. Schools are canceled. Sporting events are canceled. You name it, and we've got a long list. But what has not been canceled is the mission of God. And it's always been true in history that when God's people endured the most difficult time is when they really are able to spread the gospel faster than ever. And so the mission's not counsel. We need to be praying for God to use this to bring people to him. We need to be serving in our community, our neighborhood, so people see what God's people look like in love. We need to be sharing our hope when people seem so hopeless. But here's what we got to get, because here's what Jonah didn't get. Jonah missed the connection between God's grace and his heart. You see, what needs to happen when we understand how lost we are, how messed up we get, how selfish we are. Let's don't act like Jonah's the only person to ever be centered on themselves. We all are. That when I see that and I see that God still reaches out me in multiple ways to give me what I need and not what I deserve, then it's got to go deep. It's got to go deep. You see, for Jonah, it was just surface level. Grace was just Jonah's get-out-of-the-well-free card. And often for us, grace is just our get-out-of-hell-free card. Oh, yeah, I got God's grace. Uh, you know, I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven, and everything's good with me. That's nice, guys. But what that's supposed to do is supposed to go so deep into your character that it begins to change your response to God, and it begins to change your response to people. <clears throat> you begin to trust God, a God that will be this graceful is even take care of you during this crisis. You begin 
to see the world and to see people the way God sees people. You begin to see Ninevites as people with souls who God loves as much as you. So as we close this book, please let it go deep. You see, the book ends in a pretty um, disappointing way, honestly. We really don't know the end of the story. We don't know Jonah's response. And so the question that hangs with this is, did Jonah ever get it? You ever watch a movie where it just leaves you hanging? Seven y'all were watching one of those British shows lately on PBS. Uh, you do know that anything with a British accent is, is better acting, at least according to my wife. You, you gotta, I, gotta, I have to have subtitles of that, but at least, at least it's supposed to be better. And it was a really nice little series and a, a, sort of a, a love story between two, two guys and a, a girl they're both after, you know. Excuse me, make sure you understood that right. But you just don't really know how it ends. And that's what's going on with Jonah. But in this case, I believe it was purposeful. It leaves us hanging. How would Jonah react to a graceful God? It forces us to ask a question even deeper than that. How do I respond to God? Here's the question. Will I ever get it? Do we get it? Because if, we, if, it, if it gets deep, guys, it changes us. Thomas Carlyle, a preacher a couple centuries ago, wrote a little poem about Jonah. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonahs in their comfortable homes. To come around. If ever God's got your attention and my attention, I hope it's now. And I hope as you sit there in your comfortable home that you are coming around. More than coming around, you're pursuing the God who pursues you. You see, God gives us this book with an open ended question to leave the response to you and me. So I'm hoping that this has become an incredible book about a God that you can't help but surrender to. It's not just a fish story. It's not just a children's story. It's not just a wild tale. It actually displays the heart of God and convicts our selfish hearts. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these weeks we've had in Jonah. God, your word is so amazing. And even in the middle of a crisis has hit us, these words still speak to us right where we are. And God, we shouldn't be surprised because your word is just that powerful. And today as we put this in the context of our life and the difficulties and trials, blessings and curses that surround us, God, Lord, may we, um, may we see that we're not the center of the story. Really easy right now to think it's all about me and what I can't do and what I can do. The center of the story is you, Almighty God. And your incredible grace toward us. And the center of the story points us even here in life beyond us 
to the Ninevites. Father, who in our life that we have discounted can we pray for will come to you during this worldwide pandemic? Oh God, open doors. Help us to walk through those doors. Give us people to serve. God, may that grace that you've given us go so deep, so complete in us that it just has to come out. That slowly but surely, by your Holy Spirit, that your grace comes into us and changes our character so that people might sit up and go, my, those people that follow Jesus are really different. They handle this with faith, and they care about more than themselves. God, please empower us to glorify your name in that way. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, really appreciate you being with us, and we want to close by taking communion together. I know many of you have supplies on hand and ask you if you would go ahead and, and take those. And uh, let's be ready to, um, to partake of communion together. While this is maybe the most special time we have on Sundays together, and somehow during this moment, I pray that we're connected. I, I actually want to tie it in with Jonah because Jonah drops off the pages of the Bible after Jonah chapter 4. Until our Lord Jesus brings him up when the religious leaders are asking Jesus for another sign. He's given a ton of them, and they're asking him for another sign. And Jesus brings this story up as the final sign. Listen to Matthew chapter 12. Sort of surprises you when you see this. Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. He said to these religious leaders, if they could get it, what's your excuse? For they repented of the, of the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. If these guys could get it with this man spit out of a fish, boy, how much stronger it should be for us with this man who comes out of the grave. So how is Jonah, how is Jesus greater than Jonah? There's so many incredible contrasts here that I want you to think about as we meet around the table. Jonah ran away from God's command. But Jesus perfectly obeyed every command of God. Jonah left home kicking and screaming. But Jesus left home willing and able. Jonah rejected God's purposes for Nineveh. But Jesus embraced his mission to be a light to not just the Jews, but the Gentiles and to everybody on the face of the earth. Jonah himself stood in need of salvation. Jesus, the one who never sinned, but gave his life, but he gave his life to save us. And then one more. Jonah was ready to die because of his anger towards sinners. Jesus was willing to die because of his love 
for sinners like me and you. So let's pray. I hope you have your communion close by. And then partake as we uh, sing this wonderful old hymn together. Father, God, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for one that's greater than Jonah. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came willingly. Thank you, Father, in the greatest act of grace. He allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, to be buried in a tomb, and be resurrected to give us life. And Lord, as we remember that, God, as we stand here in the middle of an amazing visual aid, as we take of this bread and this cup, reminding us of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, help it more than just physically to go deep down in us. Help it spiritually to go deep in us and to change us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.